Do you remember the episode of Seinfeld where George dumps his girlfriend because she beats him at chess? <laughs> that happened to me. The episode the episode opens up with George and his girlfriend playing chess and he's kind of he's kind of overconfident. He's given her tips about what she she did wrong. And then uh she makes her move and it's checkmate and he loses. And he looks up and he says, "I don't think we should see each other anymore." <laughs> I went through a phase where I was playing a lot of chess on the computer. And I started to get kind of into it. And I even went and I bought a book on chess. <laughs> we went to Borders, which soon thereafter went out of business. So I got my book on chess. I'm getting better and better at chess. And then one day me and my girlfriend play chess. We hadn't been playing against each other for whatever reason. I, I say against each other. I was playing chess. She was like doing something else she was studying or something we play chess it's clear to me that she doesn't know what she's doing her moves don't make any sense to me (laughs) then she beat me (laughs) it was just like in the episode where like i was over i mean i was never condescending to her or something but i totally misunderstood the situation i thought that i was this Relative to her, I was, you know, a friggin' chess master. But I remember years later, I spoke to her, and she didn't know the order of the planets. Now, it wasn't like she had no idea what the order was. You know, she mixed up Earth and Mars, or Jupiter and Saturn, or something like that. It wasn't a huge, a huge thing. But my point is that she was really smart, and she was a little rusty, on this content that we teach to kids. So I'm going to talk about the order of the planets. And then, um, you know, I'm going to back up even further than that. I'm going to talk about uh, the bigger picture. But there's a few things about um, the solar system, the universe, the galaxy, all this stuff. There's a few things about space that I wanted to share because I've been learning something about it over the last uh, year or so. Imagine you're looking at the universe but not from not from earth i don't mean just you're looking up at space where a little bit like boethius's god that could see all of time in a in a single gaze well imagine you're outside the universe just like god was outside of time for boethius we're outside the universe and we're looking at it's like a panoramic picture and it's a rectangle it's all black there are some points of light those points of light from this proximity from this distance are the galaxies so we have all of the universe and we have the galaxies we zoom in on a galaxy a galaxy is a collection of stars being held together by gravity so now we've zoomed in on one of these galaxies we see the points of light at this level of analysis, those points of light are now stars. Each of those stars has some dust around it. The dust orbiting the star, those are the planets. So now let's look at our solar system. 
But I think it's good to start off with that big picture and then zoom in on the solar system because it reminds you that when we talk about exoplanets in a second, remember the exoplanets are just the planets orbiting other stars in our galaxy. We're not looking at stars in other galaxies. That would be too far away. So remember that we have this bigger picture. We have the galaxies. We zoom in on a single galaxy. If we zoom in on our galaxy, for instance, we can picture the sun with its planets, and then we can picture other stars in our galaxy with their planets. The planets in our solar system are Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And now... The next structure is actually the asteroid belt. After the asteroid belt, you have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And then you have um, you have Pluto, which I think is considered a Kuiper belt object. The Kuiper belt is these small objects that are very far out from the orbit of even Neptune. So I got I got some cards for you here. The scientific name for the sun, the scientific name for the moon, the scientific name for the solar system. Actually, none of these have a a scientific name. The sun is just the sun, the moon is just the moon, the solar system is just the solar system. Asteroids and comets. Have you ever puzzled over the distinction? If you look it up, you end up with things like, well, they're made of different things. One has a tail and the other doesn't. You know, those kind of bullet point characteristics, those never stuck for me. And one of the reasons is they didn't really define it. So like an asteroid could have a tail. Here's the difference. When the solar system formed... Most of the material, virtually all of it, coalesced into the object that became the sun. There was a little bit left over that became the planets. But the heavier, denser substances, think of an earth. Iron and nickel sink to the core the lighter substances are closer to the surface of the planet. Well, the same thing happens on a larger scale in a solar system. The denser substances are toward the inner solar system. The lighter substances are on the outside of the solar system. The asteroids are rocky objects toward the inner solar system. They're really kind of the boundary of the inner solar system with the rocky planets. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, those are are the gas giants. Well, comets are frozen gas. And the comets come from way out in the outer solar system with the gas giants. The reason they have a tail is because when they get closer to the sun, they're melting. The frozen gases are actually sublimating. That's what made it click for me. The asteroids are part of the inner solar system. The comets are part of the outer solar system. 
the inner solar system is composed of rocky material. The outer solar system is composed of gases. And so it makes sense that the comets would be composed of gases. Now, they're frozen gases. By the way, the tail is always pointing away from the sun. You think a tail, you think it's behind it. It's not indicating the motion of the comet. It's indicating the motion of, I guess it's radiation from the sun, that is pushing the gases outward as the substances sublimate. All of the planets have a tilt, an axial tilt. Here we go. Mercury has a two-degree tilt. That's the smallest tilt of any planet. Earth has a 23.5-degree tilt. Mars is really similar, 25 degrees. Saturn is similar, 26.7. Neptune, um, those all have very similar tilts to the Earth. <laughs> the two really interesting ones are um, Venus is upside down. <laughs> 178 degree tilt. Venus is upside down. And Uranus is sideways. It's 98 degree tilt. I remember finding that really cool when I learned it. I didn't know the tilts until last summer, but I did know that um, I did know Uranus was tilted sideways. Or I knew one of the planets was. I forgot it was Uranus. You know about the constellations? I read today about an exoplanet that was found in January. And it's one of very few exoplanets that is both Earth-sized and is located in the habitable zone of its solar system. So, a few things here. An exoplanet is a planet outside of our solar system. The habitable zone is that band in which a planet might revolve around a sun, revolve around its star, that's not too cold and that's not too hot. In other words, you have liquid water. So we don't find a lot of those planets. Whether or not a lot of them exist, I don't think we know yet. This exoplanet revolves around the star TOI 700. I think that's what the name is. TOI 700. That's the name of the star. The name of this planet is TOI 700D. It's located in the constellation Dorado. Okay, so exoplanets. By the way, the first exoplanet ever discovered. I think there's a little kind of an asterisk next to this, but um, the first exoplanet was discovered in 1995. It's 51 Pegasi b. Here's the asterisk. Here's the, the qualification. It's the first exoplanet discovered that orbits a star like our sun, that orbits a star like our sun. So I'm not really sure what that qualification is there for. I guess we found an exoplanet that doesn't orbit a star like our sun prior to the discovery of 51 Pegasi b, I guess. The constellations. Here's something I learned last summer about the constellations. First off, there's 88 constellations today. The modern constellations, there's 88 of them. When I say that TOI 700, that star, is located in the constellation Dorado. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, and I actually don't know what the case is. I suspect this is not the case. 
it isn't necessarily that it makes up the image that we call the constellation. There's sort of two two definitions to constellation. I've been thinking that this is a very um, useful way to think of language. There's a strict definition, a narrow definition, and then there's a broader definition. The strict definition of a constellation refers to the image that it's supposed to represent. Is it supposed to be a bear? Is it supposed to be a warrior? Whatever it's supposed to be. The stars that are the dots that you're connecting with lines to make that image, those stars, um, those are the constellation in the narrow sense. But the way that term is used today, the constellation, it actually refers to a region of the sky. Think of it like a big box drawn around that constellation in the narrow sense. If we draw a big box around it, there's all sorts of stars that are going to be within that box. Well, we also describe those stars as being within that constellation, even though they're not part of the image. So there's a narrow and a broad way of using the term constellation. I assume TOI 700 is within the constellation Dorado in the broad sense. I don't know that for a fact, though. 88 modern constellations. Every portion of the sky falls within a constellation. There's no part of the sky that's not part of a constellation. We inherited 48 constellations from the ancient world. And something very interesting about this. Who do you think came up with those constellations? I would have guessed the Greeks, but um, they may have come up with some, but they didn't come up with all of them. It goes back earlier. There's this guy, Eudoxus. Eudoxus was an ancient Greek. He lived in the 4th century BC. Eudoxus wrote the first textbook on the constellations. So Eudoxus is writing about the constellations. He's an ancient Greek. It's like 350 BC. It's something like that. He says he got the constellations from Egyptian priests. Oh, by the way, we don't have his books. This is true of ancient documents often. Often we know about ancient books based on comments about them by other authors. Maybe that author has done us the favor of actually copying some passages from that book that they had access to, but we no longer do. So we don't have Eudoxus's books. He had two books. So anyway, Eudoxus says he got the constellations from the, the Egyptians. Here's a problem with that. Let's see if I can do this right. The ancient constellations that we inherited, they didn't have any constellations that described the stars in the very southern portion of the night sky. You know, if you're in Antarctica and you look up. <laughs> so no one was in Antarctica. That's understandable. But the thing is, the ancient Egyptians could see the portions of the sky that do not include any constellations for, for the ancients. So that doesn't make sense. The Egyptians probably didn't come up with 
these constellations because they would have included the stars that go further south in the night sky than the ancient constellations did. So it wasn't the Egyptians. It turns out that astronomers were able to figure out that, yeah, the Greeks were roughly at the right latitude, 36 degrees north latitude, roughly. But they were at the wrong time. And also they tell us the Egyptians gave it gave it to them. So we know it came before that. Um, astronomers somehow are able to figure out that the constellations must have been conceived, at least some of them, around 2000 BC. So we're looking at 36 degrees latitude, 2000 BC. Who might it have been? Well, it was the Sumerians. So the Sumerians and the Babylonians. So our constellations reach back all the way to ancient Mesopotamia. That's kind of cool, at least some of them. I turned 14 in December of 1996. December 1996. 59 Pegasi B had just been discovered in 1995. I didn't know about that quite yet. I would have entered high school, I guess it was 97. I made a new group of friends right off the bat. So I started hanging out in a different part of Beverly, and that's where I met Chantel. Think about this. I was, um, I was in love with Chantel. We're talking 14, 15 here. And um, you know what's cool about that? Nothing physical ever happened between me and Chantel. Like years later, maybe I was 18 at this point, we kissed. I remember we would be on the phone. We would be on the phone late at night. Now, this is back before cell phones. I got the the phone from the kitchen, and the cord is pulled tight, and we'd be up late, and we'd talk all night. Do you remember that? Being up late and talking all night to, to someone? Chantel would sing. She would sing Mariah Carey. <laughs> that still sounds so nice to me. We would do this thing where we would look out the window... And we would look up at the moon at the same time. <laughs> I think we got that from, um, I don't know if that was her idea or my idea. If it was my idea, I feel like I got it from, is it an American tale, Fievel, Fifel or something? The mouse, is it, it must be a Disney movie. Um... Somewhere out there, I remember that song. This is a really fuzzy memory. We would both look up at the moon at the same time. And there was something about that that made you feel connected. 